Time for short play. Alex, best-selling Christian author and Church of Christ minister Max Licato came under fire from LGBTQ plus activists and apologized for a sermon he preached on same-sex marriage back in 2004 after he delivered a sermon at the Washington National Cathedral a couple of weeks ago. In fact, Nick, I hear he's going to write a new children's book on how to properly apologize to people, where in that book, God says sorry to Sodom and Gomorrah for burning down their cities. This book idea has caught the attention of several publishers, including Antifa and BLM, who say that with some editing, they would love to promote a book about burning down cities. So, kudos to Lakato. Sounds like a win-win to me. <laughs> this is Swordplay. <laughs> Double-edged perspective on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay... Malachi, the book of Malachi, chapter 1, and we're also going to do some introductory work as well. That's right. We're back in the Minor Prophets, and Malachi, I don't know when the last time anyone heard a sermon on Malachi was, other than a browbeating from the televangelist to give them more money, but perhaps... I think it, this... it was probably Mark in Mark chapter 1. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the last time. That's right. <laughs> So, we're going old school today with Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1. So, let's jump in, uh, Nick. Chapter 1, verse 1, introduction material. Who wrote the book of Malachi? Yeah, in a word, uh, Malachi. Malachi, the prophet of God. Uh, His name means my messenger, and that seems to be why, uh, for example, the Septuagint translated the name as Autu Angeliu, his messenger, uh, that is the Lord's messenger, or even the Lord's angel. Uh, In addition, the lack of biographical data also points some to conclude that Malachi is not a personal name, but a functionary title. However, Jewish tradition has generally viewed Malachi as a personal name. Even the tradition, which ascribed authorship to Ezra, they just said that Malachi was kind of like a pseudonym, I guess, for Ezra, Uh, In addition to that, both Obadiah and Habakkuk also lack biographical data in their book. So this aspect is not unique, and it doesn't necessitate reading the name as a title. Uh, Besides his name, little else is known about the prophet. He seems to have been a man of great boldness, a man of courage, since he denounced the priests and the upper social class of his day. And he also spoke with clear conviction on very weighty subjects, idolatry, covenant-breaking, specifically as it relates to divorce, and uh, social justice, uh, properly defined, by the way, not kind of what it's morphed into these days. So that's my take on authorship. Uh, Alex, what do you think? So the name Malachi is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, and because the name literally means my angel, we can see why speculation existed throughout the ages about the author's identity. I found one early church father who thought it may have been an actual angel who delivered the message, and though no explanation was given, I assume that since we have biblical precedent for angels delivering messages, you know, that's their job title after all, then the connection was probably not hard to make. In one pseudepigraphical work, uh, 
It was called The Lives of the Prophets, maybe around the first century AD, who knows. Malachi was said to be a young man who was so holy and gentle that the people simply called him Malachi, my angel, as a term of endearment, while his real name apparently remained unknown. All that to say is that no one really knows very much about the author of this book. And even more strange, get this, Jewish historian Josephus from the first century, he never once mentions Malachi or his prophecy in all of his writings, making Malachi the only Hebrew book omitted from Josephus' entire corpus on the Jewish faith. That's pretty interesting. I guess Josephus must have really hated Malachi. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he, he graduated from the uh, Lutheran school and said that Malachi was a prophecy of straw. <laughs> no, I'm just, yeah. There it is. Cut it out of his scrolls. <laughs> well, to whom then was the book written, Nick? Yeah, right here in verse 1, an oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel. Malachi bore the burden of this oracle to Israel. This is post-exilic Israel, that is the people of God, as they've returned from Babylonian captivity. They've been back in the land mm, 50 to 100 years. It depends on uh, which date you follow for the book, but half century to full century, they've been back in the land. So uh, that's a bit about what I saw about recipients. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, the book is addressed to Israel. It is actually just Judah that's left uh, after the exile. And within Judah, Malachi hones in on two prominent groups, the priests, so the priesthood, and the men of Judah, the leading men, the heads of the house. Those two groups are separated into two camps, one camp that acts treacherously and another camp that has a remnant of the spirit. And so a special, a special message is contained at the end of the book for the remnant. So Nick, when was the book written? So there are parallels between uh, Malachi and Nehemiah that uh, certain individuals have found. Uh, for example, the term governor in uh, 1 verse 8, uh, that's a, a title that is used also in the book of Nehemiah. So because of those parallels, many date the book either prior to, during, or after Nehemiah's tenure, and also Ezra's tenure. So uh, prior to Nehemiah, that would place the book anywhere from 500 to 460 B.C., roughly. Uh, during Nehemiah and Ezra's tenure, that would place the book around 458 to 445 B.C. And then after Nehemiah, that would place the book 430 to 400 B.C. So sometime during the 5th century B.C., that is when Malachi the prophet is active. Uh, what do you think about date, Alex? Yeah, that's interesting. If Malachi was written after Nehemiah, then that would make it the last book written in our Old Testament. Unless you also have the Apocrypha, then apparently some other important stuff happened after Malachi. Nothing to see here. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Another interesting note, the Bible Project, if you're not familiar with that, they have excellent teaching videos about the Bible, the Bible Project wrote a great blog post about the last book of the Old Testament. And guess what? Originally, it wasn't Malachi. It was Chronicles. That's the way they ordered it. 
And that's uh, that's wild stuff. Why end on Chronicles? Well, you'll have to go read the uh, blog post by Bible Project. But early Christians, they probably put Malachi at the end of their Old Testament instead because Malachi ends with the prophecy about the forerunner, about John the Baptist. And guess who opens up the early chapters of the Gospels? The forerunner, John the Baptist. So just a little brief excursus into the history of ordering our books. So, Nick, why was this book then written? What's the occasion and purpose? Yahweh through Malachi is aiming to correct his people's moral deterioration and religious dereliction. There was economic oppression that's recorded in chapter 3. There's covenantal treachery that you read about in chapter 2. There's a failure to bring the tithe over in chapter 3 again. Uh, Indeed, covenant is a very strong theme in the book of Malachi. It appears in 2 verses 5 through 9, verse 10, verse 14, also 3 verse 1. Now, despite the people's faithlessness, King Yahweh vows to make his name great beyond the border of Israel and among the nations. That's a very strong emphasis here in chapter 1, as we'll see when we start digging into uh, the meat of this chapter. Uh, Alex, what say you about occasion and purpose? Yeah, why was this book written? Well, obviously, the exile did not produce long-lasting reform in the people's hearts. Uh, So this book seems to be full of excuses, loopholes that the priests and leaders were using to avoid confronting their own sin. So Malachi writes to ensure that these men will indeed have to confront their sin, and uh, it will give hope to those who are suffering for doing what is right, hope of salvation, hope of assurance that God will judge and bring judgment against the wicked. So Nick, jumping into the text now, we get to verses 2 and 3, and we have the uh, statement, God loved Esau, and he hate, uh, God loved Jacob, and he hated Esau. How should we understand God's love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau? Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, this is a this is a doozy of a question here. And by the way, did we just do the introductory material of a book in less than ten minutes? That's uh, that's Woo-hoo. remarkable. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, Jacob, have I loved, or I have loved Jacob? Esau, I have hated. That's uh, verses two and three here. Okay, so I guess we should back off uh, first and kind of get a big picture of love and hatred. Those those are divine attributes. Both are informed by God's holy nature. So then God's love is holy and God's wrath is holy. And in addition, given his infinite and and, and, uh, holy nature, God loves and hates at a level that is deeper than humans can imagine. So that's one thing. Second, uh, we need to establish that, uh, well, God does hate certain individuals, and it is right for him to hate them. That is for them to be under his wrath. For example, Psalm 5 and verse 5, God hates all evildoers. That's just a a bald statement from Scripture. Uh, In Psalm 11 and verse 5, he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Now, we see here God's hatred is never arbitrary, and it is in perfect conformity with his holy, righteous nature. 
And even as his love is in perfect conformity with his holy nature, and it is right for him to love, so too is his hatred informed by his nature, and that also is right. Uh, In the third place, um, we can work to redefine terminology here. For example, some do that with uh, like the word hatred. Well, hatred, it really means just to, to love less. And while that kind of usage of terminology can be justified in certain contexts, here the language is unequivocal. Jacob is loved, Esau is hated. Indeed, the love of God for Jacob is reflected in Israel's return to the land following exile. Conversely, the hatred of God for Esau is evidenced in Edom's failure to reestablish and rebuild itself. These words, love and hatred, they communicate more than emotion. They're also linked to covenant. Israel finds Yahweh loyal to the covenant he made with them. And so they find uh, post-exilic restoration. Meanwhile, Edom has no covenant and is rejected by Yahweh, which is manifested in judgment. Now, specifically here to Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, they were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, Rebekah. E- Esau, though he was older, forfeited his birthright for a bowl of stew, and so Jacob was the son of promise. These two individuals, they are the titular heads of the nations of Israel and Edom. Jacob being the titular head of Israel, Esau being the titular head of Edom. So just as the individuals were loved and hated, so the nations are loved and hated. Jacob was loved by God, and therefore the covenant was made with him, even though he was the younger brother. And you can see Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 5, where Yahweh establishes covenant with Jacob. Esau was hated by God, and therefore no covenant is made with him. Long before there were nations, there were the brothers with whom God dealt according to his sovereign purposes. And this is the way that the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interprets this passage when he quotes it in Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. Paul has just finished uh, a lengthy discussion about God's purposes and uh, specifically as it relates to the church. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification, all these things God doing for his elect. And so in 8 and verse 13, he says, no one can bring a charge against God's elect and nothing can separate God's elect from God's love. Uh, That's the the last two verses in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 9 is Paul exploring whether God can be trusted in light of his contemporary dealings with Israel. How can God be trusted to show steadfast covenantal loyalty or righteousness, as uh, Paul has been using it in the book of Romans. And how can, he, how can he be trusted to show love to us, to Christians, when he has been and remains unfaithful to Israel? Paul says, good question. Allow me to explain. Paul wishes, if it were possible, that he could be cut off for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says that in 9 verses 1 through 3. Israel had covenantal blessing galore. Most notably, the entrance of Messiah into human history, and Paul details those in verses 4 and 5. But God's word has not failed, he says in 9 verse 6. Paul begins arguing, 
Not all of Abraham's children belong to Israel. 9, verse 6, and also verse 7. That is, not all of Abraham's offspring are children of promise. Exhibit A, Isaac. In contrast to the rest of Abraham's children. This is now 9, verses uh, 7 through 9 of Romans. Isaac is the son of promise, not Ishmael or any other. Well, of course, Paul, it might be objected, but Ishmael is from a different woman, a slave woman. Well, let me give you exhibit B, the twins, Jacob and Esau, who came from one bed. There are not two beds and two wombs here. There's only one carrying the twins. One father, one mother, two children, born at the same time, as opposed to Ishmael being born years before Isaac. And verse 11 of Romans 9 carries the doctrine concerning God's purpose of election, specifically that before the two sons were born and before they did anything good or evil, that is works, God told Rebekah that Jacob was the child of promise and Esau was not. And then here is scripture. He quotes from Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, and our text, Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. And so you have all the Hebrew Bible uniting to affirm God's sovereign purpose and election, thereby explaining why not all Israel is Israel. God's purpose of election is entirely the result of God's activity and action. Paul states his doctrinal conclusion plainly. God's purpose of election continues because of him who calls. Who is him who calls? That's God. God also asserts his right to choose. Uh, that is election uh, or, or call. Once again, demonstrating it is not because of works done by either Jacob or Esau. In fact, both brothers, when you look at the record, they were both gross moral failures in their own right. This dispenses with the notion that God then foreknew their deeds, foreknew the kind of men uh, that uh, Jacob and Esau, and specifically the kind of man Esau would be, and therefore, based upon the kind of men they would be, he chose Jacob and not Esau. In fact, that is diametrically opposed to the very case Paul makes, not because of works. And it certainly... That, uh, that conclusion concerning foreknowledge doesn't lead to the objection that Paul states in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Uh, so, everything you wanted to know about Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, <laughs> and, uh, and the way Paul read it, um, there you go. All right, Alex, um, what, about, what say you about this? Uh, how, should, how should we understand God's love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau? Yeah, so I'd like to take a step back, look at Malachi in the context of the Old Testament for a minute. And when we see the words love and hate, you know, we do initially think of those words as conveying strong emotional reactions, because that's how we use it. So in the Old Testament, though, in the ancient Near East, these words were used within covenant treaties. And depending on the passage of scripture that we're looking at, especially if we're talking about covenants, love should be understood as covenant loyalty, and hate should be understood as covenant disloyalty or not in covenant at all. So here's how election ties into this framework. Who did God choose to be his people? Yahweh had no people from the Tower of Babel. Those nations were all given over to other gods. So Yahweh chooses one man, Abraham, and then chooses the son of promise, Isaac, 
And though Isaac's wife Rebekah was pregnant with twins, God made a choice to carry on the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob and not Esau. It wasn't personal. It wasn't performance-based. It was God's choice to carry it through Jacob. So God loves Jacob. I think that means that God chose Jacob for covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty. God hated Esau, so I think that means God did not make Esau his covenant people. The same idea is seen in the New Testament when Jesus says that you have to hate your family to be a disciple. It's in Luke 14, verse 26. If Jesus meant we have to have a strong emotional reaction uh, against our family, then I doubt there are any disciples on the earth. However, if Jesus had covenant loyalty in mind, then the statement seems more understandable and appropriate. One's loyalty to Jesus as a disciple must outweigh one's loyalty to all others. And so that's how those terms love and hate are used in covenant uh, language throughout the ancient Near East. So here's a fascinating side note. Yahweh did make a separate agreement of some sort with the descendants of Esau. Now, you may be thinking, what? (laughs) But it's true, they did. Yahweh gave them, the Edomites, the territory of Mount Seir. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 5. That deal was apparently struck by the Edomites agreeing to dispossess the Horites, who were the previous inhabitants of Mount Seir. And the Horites were also associated with giant clans, and we all know how Yahweh feels about giants. It even says that Yahweh went before the Edomites to make sure that they would be successful. That's Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 22. So here's something I'll throw out there in anticipation of verse 4. Could Yahweh's hate for Esau also be alluding to the loss of their dwelling place since they had gained the possession rights from Yahweh, right? Deuteronomy 2. Was the Edomites' land security granted by Yahweh dependent upon how they would subsequently behave, especially towards God's covenant people? Certainly, there could be some connection to that as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in verse 4. Next up, verse 3. So, uh, concerning uh, Edom, I have laid waste his hill country, left his heritage to jackals of the desert, uh, here in verse 3. Alex, what are are the jackals of the wilderness? Yeah, the jackals of the... You know, speaking of anticipation, this is going to be today's featured creature. So stay Mm -hmm. tuned. And we'll discuss the jackals at the end of this episode. So, verse 4 then. Nick, what does the Lord of hosts mean? Uh, so, we've, we've uh, answered this question uh, more than once uh, before when covering the books of uh, Haggai and uh, Nahum. And so, I'm just going to point our folks to the archives. Uh, go back and listen to those episodes on, on Haggai and Nahum. Uh, where we do answer the question uh, there as well. But just as review, Yahweh of hosts uh, is uh, uh, an appropriate translation. Uh, The Lord who rules over all is how the New English translation puts it. Lord Almighty is what your NIV is going to say. And this designation is used over 90 times in the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. 
This is a regal royal title. It first appears in 1 Samuel 1, verse 3. Yahweh is the sovereign cosmic ruler of the universe over things seen and things unseen. He is commander of the angelic armies of heaven. He's the sovereign king, the monarch over the nation of Israel. And so this title refers to his, uh, his power, his might, perhaps even skill as a military strategist since he's in command of the hosts of the heavenly angelic armies. Uh, basically, none can stand against him. Uh, so that's a bit about Lord of Hosts uh, from me. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, that's right. And the visual demonstration or illustration of this title was seen in the stars. The stars were called the hosts of heaven. Well, that's Yahweh's army, folks. That's that's how many he has on his side. That's how powerful they are. Their light, which shines from so far away, is the power of their glory as they march around in circles day after day around the throne of God. So it's a very awesome picture of the king of kings sitting on his throne. So Nick, talk to us now back to this idea of Edom. We're in verse 4. First, where was Edom located, and why won't Yahweh let them rebuild? So the territory of Edom was south-southeast of the Dead Sea. So if you're, if you're looking at your Bible maps at the back of your Bible, uh, if you have a map of uh, the, the, the Promised Land of Israel, you have the Mediterranean Sea, it's on the west, and then on the east you have the, the Sea of Galilee up north with the Jordan River running south to the Dead Sea, and then Below that, south-southeast of the Dead Sea, is where the territory of Edom was. Now, why won't Yahweh let them rebuild? Well, Yahweh won't let them rebuild because they are the people Yahweh is angry with forever. Unlike Israel, Edom had no covenant with Yahweh. Uh, Like their descendant Esau, they were not chosen or loved by God. Like their descendant Esau, they were unholy, the wicked country, as they are styled here. So divine wrath forever is appropriately upon them. It should be noted, neither Israel, and even going all the way back to Jacob, nor Edom, and going all the way back to Esau, neither one of them deserves God's love. Both merit his wrath expressed in destruction. Indeed, Israel had experienced the wrath of God during the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And yet, God in love chose Jacob and Israel and was not angry forever, but instead has returned them to the land and will give them a future. Uh, What did you find, Alex, about the location of Edom and and why Yahweh won't let them rebuild? Yeah, so as I cited earlier, Yahweh did have a deal with Edom. You know, you could call it a covenant if you want. And he gave them the land which they dwelt in, Mount Seir. Here's how I think they lost their special deal with Yahweh. As outlined in the book of Obadiah, we do see that the Edomites, uh, they didn't passively sit by as Yahweh's judgment came down upon Judah and Jerusalem in the form of Babylon's armies. Not content with observing from afar, the Edomites joined in on the destruction and the looting and the mocking and the capturing of Judah's fugitives. And so because Edom acted that way towards their brother nation, Yahweh pronounced Edom's judgment and destruction 
And that judgment included the promise that the house of Esau will not survive. There will be no more covenant. In other words, hate refers to their non-covenant relationship now. So in Malachi, Yahweh assures that even if Edomite remnants try to rebuild in Seir, Yahweh will destroy it again. And this is the difference between Yahweh's covenantal relationship with the descendants of Jacob and Esau. After Babylon destroys Judah and Jerusalem, as you noted, Yahweh's loyalty to his covenant people remains intact. After Edom is destroyed, his deal with them is no good anymore. He's no longer loyal to giving them Mount Seir. So Yahweh's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it illustrates in Malachi here, Yahweh's love, Yahweh's covenant loyalty to the highest degree because he has no other greater commitment with any other people. So that's my view on covenant, Jacob, Esau, and judgment on Edom. So moving on to verse 5, why would Nick, Yahweh's judgment on Edom, magnify Yahweh beyond the border of Israel? Yeah, so God is always uh, glorified in salvation as well as judgment, and also in salvation through judgment. As it pertains to salvation, God's love, mercy, grace, those are magnified. As pertains to judgment, God's holiness, justice, wrath are magnified. One remarkable facet of judgment pronouncements in Scripture is their proximity to the phrase, the glory of God. Uh, For example, when God pronounces judgment upon the nations in Isaiah 34, those who witness this judgment shall see the glory of Yahweh, uh, Isaiah 35 verse 2 says. In addition, in the midst of announcing judgment and woe upon Babylon is an announcement that the earth will be filled with the, the, the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh over in Habakkuk 2. And verse 14. And and other examples could be given of this, but suffice it to say, the biblical authors recognize that the Creator's relationship to His creation is intended to reveal something about Him, not only as the Creator, but as the righteous judge, especially through acts of judgment. And so that's how I see Yahweh's judgment on Edom magnifying Him beyond the border of Israel. What say you, Alex? Yeah, so I'm going to approach it from a different angle. Simply put, If Yahweh can give land to the Edomites and then permanently take it away because of their treatment of Judah during Babylonian destruction, it then puts on notice all the other nations. The nations may have their gods, they may have their land, but if Yahweh can still override and broker land deals in the heavenly realms, then that puts Yahweh's authority quite a few notches above the other gods. And this is the concept of cosmic geography in the ancient Near East, which is helpful when reading the Bible. If one nation took another nation's land, it was because their gods had fought in the heavenly realms and the result of those cosmic fights determined the winners of human warfare. And yet here we have in the Bible, it is Yahweh who actually is the final say on who gets what land. Let's go to verses 6 and 7 here, where uh, you do have this prophetic utterance uh, made against uh, the the priests and the priesthood 
And they're running around saying, the end of verse 6, how have we despised your name? And then in verse 7, how have we polluted you? Alex, do, do the priests honestly not know their fault? Do they, do they think God does not see? It is quite ironic that they offered a blind animal to a God whom they thought would not see. You know, I recently preached a sermon on Psalm 10, which outlines the mindset of one who practices evil. And I don't mean like day-to-day mistakes, but like a real practicing of evil as if they were training for the Olympics, dead set on lying, killing, and stealing. And these kinds of people, they say to themselves, the psalmist notes, there's no God I'm accountable to. I'll never be caught. God will never see it. God won't know or care. And then they prey on the innocent, convinced that their success proves their evil thoughts correct. Even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that evil wolves in sheep's clothing will try to pass themselves off as real Christians on the day of judgment, thinking that Jesus will have no idea what they did. But Jesus knows, and they will know that he knows on that day. These priests here sound like those wolves. What do you think, Nick? So a few possibilities come to mind. And, and no, that's uh, Psalm 10, bringing that to the table. That's good stuff there, the kind of the, the practical atheism as it's uh, been classically interpreted. Um, and, and I'll just come alongside and, and add a few other possibilities that come to my mind. Uh, the deceitfulness of sin uh, comes to mind. J.C. Ryle uh, wrote a book uh, over 100 years ago, and so you know nobody really reads it, I guess, but I do. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> It's a book called Holiness, and he begins a book on holiness with a chapter on sin. And he explains why he does that. But uh, in, in that chapter, he talks about how sin never presents itself as an eternal enemy, but like a friend. Uh, that uh, he likens sin to Judas coming to us with a kiss. And often, uh, that, that's what people do. They convince themselves that sin is not as sinful as God says, or, or sin isn't really sin at all, and priests are not exempt from this. Also, uh, ignorance comes to mind. Uh, they've already confessed to ignorance of God's love, and perhaps that is indicative of their ignorance of God's law. While they should be, these priests should be the most knowledgeable of the law, it may be they're actually blind guides themselves. And then a third thing that comes to mind is willful rebellion. They fully knew what they were doing was sinful, and they did it anyway. In fact, we get later on in this chapter, they're saying, what a weariness this is. And that, that seems to reveal the darkened hearts of these priests. Even the worship of Yahweh God has become burdensome to them. So their consciences are so dull and callous that they were doing evil and calling it no evil. Eh, it's no evil. Uh, and we'll see this in verse 6 as well. So, Well, speaking of evil, Nick, why is offering a blind animal an evil sacrifice in verse 8? Under the uh, sacrificial system, the, the animals which were offered to the Lord were to be without blemish. Blindness is specifically mentioned as a defective blemish, which is unacceptable to Yahweh. Leviticus 22, verse 22, Deuteronomy 15, verse 22. Uh, one interesting uh, way the question here, uh, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? One way that that question, is it not evil, could be read is as prophetic irony, where the prophet is capturing the thoughts of the priest. So the priests are saying, it's not evil. 
So they, they saw nothing wrong with their violation of the law. This whole enterprise is evil because the sacrificial system ultimately pointed to Christ. The unblemished sacrifices that were offered by the Levitical priesthood, they served as a type or a, a figure of Christ's atoning sacrifice. So then also, they failed to honor God as holy in this. His law, the stipulations that are contained therein, the fulfillment of that law in his Christ. And so they had turned what is holy into something profane and even evil. And, and that's what I see here in regards to these evil sacrifices. What do you think about these blind animals as an evil sacrifice, Alex? Yeah, in the Levitical sacrificial system, there were levels of holiness or sacred space. You had the outer court, then the inner court, then inside the temple, you had the holy place, then the most holy place. Each level required more ritual, had more stipulations, and became more exclusive until finally only the high priest could go inside the most holy place, and that only one time a year. The idea was that the closer you got to God's presence, the more prepared you had to be, which included the idea of being whole yourself. The blind and the lame couldn't go beyond the outer court because they were not complete. They were not whole in their body. They were missing some of their life because of their condition. And since the animals in the sacrificial system were to represent the ones who were making the sacrifice, neither the animal nor the offerer uh, could be lacking in life force. They are not fit for sacred space. So it's evil to bring a blind sacrifice because you're bringing something unfit into God's sacred space. Ironically, it was not God who couldn't see them while they did this evil, but it was they who couldn't see the folly of their ways. So in a way, the blind animal did accurately represent the priest's condition. And Jesus really brings this point home in John chapter 9 when he heals uh, the, a blind man and it is shown at the end of the story that the Pharisees were the real blind ones and unfit ones to lead the people into sacred space. And so too here in Malachi, the priests are the blind ones and unfit to lead the people into sacred space. So Nick, verse 10, Yahweh says, shut the gates. Which gates does Yahweh want shut? Why does he want them shut? Gates or doors, my uh, English Standard Version says here. Kyle and DeLeach, uh, in their commentary, they say the doors which are shut are the folding doors of the inner court. Uh, the, in other words, the inner court of the, of the temple. And uh, proximity to mention of the altar, just uh, uh, in the next phrase there, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Uh, that also serves to show that uh, these are the, the doors that are in view here uh, on, the, on the temple inner court. So Yahweh is saying, you know, it'd be better if he just shuttered the whole operation, close up the whole temple, rather than continuing to bring and offer unclean sacrifices. That's how, that's how twisted things have become. And also, it's uh, fascinating how this verse has been interpreted uh, down through the years. Uh, even seeing here the time that would come when the sacrificial system would be shuttered, because of a better sacrifice that has been made in Jesus uh, the Christ. Uh, so uh, even here, kind of a, uh, what, uh, an indirect messianic prophecy of sorts of, sure. a, of a coming day when the doors would be shut. So 
Uh, what, what say you, Alex, about these gates that Yahweh wants shut? Yeah, I think the Septuagint adds some clarity here by also recording that Yahweh said, It is not my desire to be among you. Oof, no ambiguity there. Yep. God's presence was at the temple. The temple was made unfit for sacred space, so God says, I won't be there. Interesting note, at both the tabernacle of Moses and the inauguration of the temple of Solomon, God's presence was made manifest in a pillar of fire. His glory came down upon it and filled it. No such scene was ever recorded concerning the temple built after exile. And perhaps that's why the Apostle John opens his gospel with the word becoming flesh and dwelling or tabernacling, tabernacling among us. And they saw his glory. Jesus goes in, cleans the temple, and then refers to his own body as the real temple. Nick, verse 11, how should this verse be translated? Is it in the present tense, the past tense, the future tense? Given the translation here, how should we understand this verse? Yeah, so the issue of translation arises in this verse because, as uh, Chisholm notes in his handbook on the prophets, there are no temporal indicators. And so my English standard reads, my name will be great Uh, Later on, incense will be offered. Later on, my name will be great, clearly rendering the verse in the future tense. However, if you go to, say, the New Revised Standard, that uh, version reads, my name is great. Incense is offered. My name is great. And so it's clearly rendering the verse in the present tense. Uh, The New American Standard reads, uh, will be, for all those uh, verbs, but typical for the New American Standard, the words are italicized, and that is uh, indicative that these words are not in the original language. Compounding the issue is the reading in the Septuagint, which reads, my name has been honored, which is a uh, perfect tense verb. Incense is brought, which is a present tense verb. Great is my name, but there's no verb there uh, to be translated. So, The perfect tense would indicate the Lord made his name great, and it continued to be great in Malachi's day, hence the present tense that's used later on in the verse. So, what do we have? Well, again, present or future. Militating against the present tense reading is that the priesthood, which is being denounced in this section, and this denunciation is going to go all the way to 2 verse 9, They have not been making God's name great, and they've not been offering pure offerings. We've been talking about that as we've been going along here. So God's name is not glorified in the priesthood with their sickly offerings, their exasperated view of the sacrificial system. What a weariness this is. And so it seems reasonable then to understand this verse as prophetic. It's pointing to a time when God's name would be revered and when unpolluted and pure offerings would be offered to Yahweh and Such a time has come in Christ and his church. Jesus teaches how people will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in God's kingdom. Uh, Matthew 8 and verse 11, there's a parallel passage over in Luke chapter 13, verse 29. East would be the direction of the sunrise, and to the west is how the Septuagint reads in Malachi 
uh, 1 verse 11 here. So what is pictured is the entrance of Gentiles into God's kingdom, even the glorification of the name of Yahweh in the salvation of the Gentiles. In addition, uh, the phrase, in every place, uh, and, and specifically how that's rendered in the Septuagint, in Ponti uh, Tapu, uh, Tapo, uh, is identical to Paul's admonition for Christian men in every place to raise holy hands in prayer. It's the same phrase. Such prayer done in holiness without anger or quarreling are the pure, unpolluted offerings of the kingdom. So, it seems reasonable that what Malachi envisioned in his day has come to fruition in the Christian era. Uh, so that's my take on translation interpretation of that verse. Alex, uh, you want to toss in anything here? Yeah, I'm just going to read the verse just so uh, people can have it in their mind. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name, I'm going to go ahead and stick with the New American Standard based off of what you said, will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered in, to my name, and a grain offering that is that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. So I think, yeah, given that the rest of the book has numerous prophetic passages, I would agree with you. I'd say you're right. It is a vision of what will be eventually. So Nick, talk to us for a second then in verse 12. Did the priest really say to themselves that the table of the Lord is defiled? What do you think? They, they may have been uttering that kind of contemptible speech under their breath, and that would only be further evidence of their rebellion or, or their self-deception concerning their sin. But actions speak louder than words. Even if they weren't verbalizing this, their sacrifices certainly told the story. What is especially telling is, is the last phrase here, um, where they're saying that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. That smacks of a priest and uh, a whole priesthood who is uh, equivocating and justifying their actions. No, it's all right. Lame, blind animals, oh, they'll do just fine. After all, this is what God has given us, isn't it? Or worse, let's, get God, let's, let's give God these and we'll keep for ourselves the good stuff. And they will be accused of robbery concerning the tithe when we get to chapter 3. It may be that it applied to other parts of the sacrificial system as well. So, yeah, a lot of bad stuff going on here. Uh, what, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I would agree that their actions speak louder than their words. They don't even have to actually say the table of Yahweh is defiled because that's the way they treated it. And so they might as well have said it. And perhaps that's what, uh, that's what God is bringing before them, making them confront their sin and making them confront uh, the, the thoughts even that they have in their heart and the way they act. Verse 13 Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll snag this one. Uh, you say, what a weariness this is. You snort at it, says Yahweh of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or stolen, uh, is another way of, of that reading, or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Um, the, the NIV, I'll just note here for that phrase, taken by violence, uh, reads injured uh, so, uh, alternate translate, but everyone I read, they were saying, no, it's, uh, it's taken by violence. It's stolen. So, Alex, um, how would the priests know if the animal was stolen? 
Yeah, interestingly enough, it doesn't say in Malachi how or even if the priests would know about any stolen animal. However, it does remind me of Jesus turning over the money changers' tables in the temple because they had made the house of God a den of robbers. So in other words, they were ripping people off when they exchanged currency and sold animals that had been, quote, approved for sacrifice. Now, obviously, the priestly enterprise in Jesus's day isn't mentioned here in Malachi, but I wonder if the kernel of such an idea was already being planted Mm. right here in the days of Malachi 1. Verse 14, last verse of the chapter. Uh, Here it says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to, I suppose that's Adonai, right? No, no, yeah, uh, Adonai. Sacrifices to Adonai what is blemished. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And, And that's really what we want to key in on here, Alex. How is Yahweh's name feared among the nations? You know, invite, uh, in light of what we said in verse 11, I think this is probably a, another prophetic statement. It's said in the present tense, and so they're saying, Yahweh is saying it as if he's already looking at it, uh, but it's what will eventually be. He's seeing a, a, in his mind a vision of what he's going to bring about eventually. So that ironically brings these priests into a, a, a position of really being the antithesis of what they should be foreshadowing. If what God knows he will accomplish um, through Christ Jesus and the church, the Old Testament, that's supposed to be a foreshadowing of that. But the priests are not foreshadowing anything about God's kingdom or his glory. They are uh, giving you not the image of God, but the image of perhaps their real father, the devil. But you know, Don't worry, I think Malachi will say, because there will come one from the tribe of Levi, a true priest, a true prophet. He will be called the messenger, and he will come to set things in order and prepare the way. And that's going to be more in Malachi chapter 4. So, Nick, what do you think? How is Yahweh's name feared among the nations? So the the first uh, part of this uh, sentence, for I am a great king, uh, it, it's a self-declaration of uh, Yahweh. Uh, it's the present reality for all human history, past, present, future. Indeed, the Septuagint reads, Ego me, for I am. And that recalls Yahweh's self-revelation to Moses back in Exodus 3 and verse 14. Yahweh's kingship over all is evident throughout the Hebrew Bible. He is a great king over all the earth, Psalm 47, verse 2. His throne is in heaven. He rules over everything, Psalm 103, verse 19. At the same time, there were times in Israel's past when Yahweh acted and the nations feared. Uh, Most notably, the Exodus. Uh, Over in Exodus 15, Verses 14 through 16, it is no, uh, that's a noteworthy example since Edom is specifically mentioned as being dismayed at what Yahweh did to the Egyptians and what he did for Israel by, by uh, uh, connection. Also in Ezekiel, the revelation of Yahweh's identity is a key theme with the phrase, you will know that I am Yahweh, 
or they will know that I am Yahweh. That appears dozens of times in the book of Ezekiel, including in judgment declarations for foreign nations. And again, noteworthy here is that Edom is one nation that when destruction comes, they shall know my vengeance, declares Yahweh God, Ezekiel 25 and verse 14. So in some sense, Yahweh has been making his name great throughout human history, even in spite of his people. And at the same time, uh, as discussed in my exposition of uh, verse 11, there's, there's coming something yet future, which will bring about the magnification of God's name like never before. And in Christ and his church, this is indeed being done. All right. Well, we are at the end of chapter one, and we have one last question. It's more of a reflection kind of question, Nick. So I was just wondering, you know, what kind of circumstances would lead to such a corrupted priesthood even so soon after exile? What are your thoughts on that? So one of the apparently permanent results of the exile was it permanently rid idolatry from Israel, uh, at least in terms of, you know, making images and, and stuff like that. The, 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 even though that happened, though, the nation and the priesthood have slipped back into old habits, specifically neglecting Yahweh's house, table, and tithe. No, they did not completely abandon Yahweh, not entirely. And uh, such laxity, disregard for the things of Yahweh after the exile, not new. We've covered Haggai when they neglected building God's house. Ezra and Nehemiah, they each have to engage in revival in their respective times. So this is a familiar refrain for Israel after exile. And what this illustrates is nothing short of what is evident in every one of us. We may not abandon God, not completely, but do we hold him high? Do we exalt him in our hearts? Do we give him first place, even yielding our will to his will? We are tempted to ignorance, indifference, heartless service, cold faith. Though we are Christians, we continue to struggle against the flesh and sin, and more often than we'd like to admit, we come up short. What is needed today is what was needed then, full hearted repentance. That's what I think about uh, what kind of led to this situation here with the corrupt priesthood. Alex, what do you think? You know, the thought that kept coming to my mind is, I think these people needed to see their king. They didn't have one on earth, right? They just had a governor. It was the king who set the example and direction of the people. And their eyes of faith had gone dim blind, right? So that they couldn't see Yahweh in their hearts as king of all creation anymore. They needed a new Moses, a new David, someone to show them in person how to be faithful. But God will send them something even better. Yahweh himself will come down and once again desire to be among his people. Emmanuel, God with us. And that brings us to our featured creature. Featured creature. Today's featured creature uh, is the jackal. The jackal. I don't know about you, but when I was studying the jackal, I just kept thinking of uh, the hyenas from Lion King. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) why don't you talk to us for a second, Nick, about the jackals? 
Uh, and so thank you, diligent listener, for hanging with us. Uh, we, we mentioned this when we were going through uh, earlier in the chapter, verse 3. So we circle back there. Um, my English standard reads jackals of the desert. The New International Version says desert jackals. New English translation says wild jackals. It's interesting, um, especially if you're reading from the King James Version, because your translation is going to read dragons of the wilderness. And the reason for that is because it followed the Latin Vulgate. Um, and uh, which is, by the way, that's a, uh, uh, a regular thing in the King James. They relied heavily upon the uh, Latin Vulgate uh, in their translation exercises. Uh, the Septuagint reads a little different. I stationed, and another way that could be understood is I appointed or commanded or ordered his, that is Esau's, inheritance into gifts of desolation. I, I ordered his inheritance into gifts of desolation. So, what about, what about uh, jackals here? The, the word translated jackal here is found elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. And it's often in connection with the ostrich, which I found, uh, I don't know, it's kind of weird, uh, weird uh, odd couple stuff, right? Uh, ostriches and, and hyenas. But uh, like so Timon what do we read? Pumbaa. Yeah, yeah. Animal so, duo. <laughs> so Job is a brother of the jackals. He is a companion of the ostrich over in Job 30 and verse 29. Uh, when God brings judgment upon the nations, and that includes Edom, their abandoned strongholds and fortresses become abodes for jackals and ostriches, Isaiah 34, four, uh, 34 13. After Judah has been ravaged by Babylon, the prophet compares God's people's behavior to animals, specifically jackals and ostriches, noting how they are acting like the ostrich who neglects its young, not the jackal who feeds her young. Uh, this is Lamentations 4 and verse 3. And Micah, knowing the calamity coming upon Israel by way of the war machine Assyria, laments and joins with Job in uniting his mourning with the jackals and the ostriches, Micah 1 and verse 8. Now, one of the fascinating uh, themes, motifs concerning the wilderness, is that it's not always bad. For example, in Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 21, when Yahweh promises a new thing, the wilderness is actually the locus of God's blessing. Indeed, so great are the blessings that the wild beasts, especially the jackal and ostrich, will honor Yahweh, verse 19 tells us. Yes, the wilderness is harsh. It is barren. It is a dangerous place. And yet, it is also a place where people must encounter and rely upon God for survival, even finding grace from him, as Jeremiah 31 verse 2 says. Unfortunately, Edom would not find grace in the wilderness, only wrath forever. Thus, the wild desert jackals, those nocturnal scavenging pack animals, they would find their inheritance in Edom's desolation. That's what I saw, what I found about jackals. Uh, Alex, what did you see? All right. So, like we've seen in other featured creatures, uh, like the goat demons, the jackal is sometimes conflated with the presence of demonic beings. The demonic beings arrive at the time of a nation's or a city's destruction, preparing to make the rubble their new home sweet home. When Babylon's destruction is foretold in Isaiah 13, verses 21 through 22, it's the shaggy goats or the goat demons, which will come and frolic 
in the desolation. The goat demons even have friends with them, like the jackals. You know, Edom's judgment is not just seen here in Malachi, but a parallel passage is in Isaiah 34, verses 13 through 14. There we see the goat demon again, also with another featured creature, Lilith. And who hangs out with these guys? The jackals. So either these passages are using the figure of a jackal to describe some sort of demonic being or demonic presence, uh, you know, kind of like Lilith in the satyrs. Uh, maybe the uh, jackals are also demons, right? And you kind of have one of two choices that I see. Uh, maybe Lilith and the satyrs are keeping the jackals as, as they're like, little evil domesticated pets you know like some uh twisted inversion of a of a family that you would see like in the adams family or something i don't know either way the consistent image of the wilderness is one full of demons and why do demons dwell in the wilderness because it has no life no water it is chaos and it is the furthest thing away from sacred space on earth The fact that Israel survived in the wilderness after the Exodus is a testament to God's presence being among them, thus making their dwelling a sacred space. So, the next time you're at the pet store and you ask your kids, hey, which one do you want? Do you want the poodle or the Labrador? And if your child responds, oh, I want the one that speaks Latin and vomits while its head spins around. What is that, a jackal? You know, just get the goldfish instead, okay? Save yourself a headache there, Mom and Dad. And that's our featured creature, the jackal. Uh, 61 minutes. Wow, that's... We got introductory material and all of a chapter in 61 minutes. There you go. Packed full Uh, of information. Of course, the bad news is, since we went over an hour, it's got to be free, right? That's right. Or (laughs) or refunded. So, yeah, whatever you paid. You can expect a, a deposit back into your, your account. Okay, well, Nick, you have any uh, instructions for our listeners? If you have a question, you can text. Well, let me back up here. Uh, first of all, go into either, uh, well, it's only on Apple Podcasts right now. Uh, go in there, search uh, for the podcast, Sword to Play, subscribe if you haven't already. Leave a review. That'll help us... Uh, Get the word out about it. Share it on social media if you'd like to as well uh, to let folks know what we're doing here on Swordplay. If you have a question, you can text it in to the Swordplay text line. That is 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. You text your question in. We'll answer it on air. Uh, Simple as that. Uh, If they want to email a question in, Alex, where can they send that? Send your emails to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Next time we will continue our study in the book of Malachi with chapter 2. So come back again to Swordplay, where you get a double-edged perspective on Scripture. 